Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scottsdale Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray that it acts as an encouragement to you today. We are currently in a series called The Movement, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are specifically looking at God's movement through the early church. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. So glad all of you are here with us in person. It's always good to see faces whenever we stand on this platform and we lead you in worship and we lead you in God's word. We're so grateful for your presence here today. Those of you who are watching us online, we're so grateful that you're able to join us each week as we're live streaming during the 930 hour. I know many of you are in the comfort of your home. You didn't have to get out today. didn't have to warm up the car. You're maybe still in your pajamas. You may be on the recliner. You may be on the sofa. We're so glad that you invited us into your home. And we're so grateful for the opportunity to join with you. And those of you who are in the Cross Point Center at 11 o'clock, I just want to give a shout out to you all. Thank you for each week taking opportunity of that venue that we have provided for you. And our desire is to reach as many people as we can with the gospel and engaging them in our services. And again, we're glad that you're here. Well, we have been going through a series on a book of Acts. And we've said that we're going to be reading large chunks of scripture at a time, and we're going to be landing in certain places. Because the book of Acts is a narrative, it's a storyline, it tells a story all the way through, and we want you to keep up with us through your reading. That way you'll know where we are. So far, when we looked at the first chapter of Acts, we discovered that Jesus gave us the mission statement for our lives, that we are to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, our purpose is to be witnesses, and the plan is to go from our communities to our country, ultimately to the continents. And that's what he's laid out for us. And the second chapter of Acts, what we discovered there was the birth of the church and how God is multiplying the church. In Acts 3, we saw how the church is to move out into culture. And we're to be spirit-filled in our awareness, in our gospel faithfulness, and in our boldness. And then we get to Acts chapter 4, and we find how the church relates to one another. That we're to relate to one another in unity and in testimony. We're to relate to one another with generosity and in humility. Then we got to Acts chapter 5. And we discovered that there is no perfect church. Because we run into a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And what we discover there is one of the greatest enemies of the church then and now is a spirit of hypocrisy. And so last week, we got to unfold that passage in Acts chapter 5, and we discovered the causes of hypocrisy and how we can overcome hypocrisy in our own lives. Well, today we're in chapter 6, and chapter 6 and 7 are pivotal, pivotal moments for the church and for the whole book of Acts. So if you would take your Bibles, your devices, open to Acts chapter 6. Now, before we start unpacking um, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 7, I want to share just a couple of things with you that has been taking place in the church in Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is on fire with Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is being empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The first church of Jerusalem is the talk of the town. 
I mean, every single day, people are getting saved at the first church of Jerusalem. People are being baptized. Small groups are popping up all over Jerusalem. They're breaking up in homes, and they're having fellowship together. They're eating their meals together. I mean, everything, there is this incredible excitement all through Jerusalem. We also find that people are wanting to be together. God is no longer adding to the church at this point. He's multiplying the church. And we're seeing people saved and even priests coming. I mean, this was a spiritual oasis in a dry land. This was like a, a heavenly utopia on earth. And everybody loved what was happening. In fact, nobody wanted to leave. Nobody wanted their little small group to be split up. Nobody wanted the big congregation to be broken down in smaller congregations to reach more people. No, the concept in Jerusalem was, let's just keep inviting people to come to us. And as a result, they were mission, missing the mission that God had for them. You see, the heart of the Father is this. The plan of the Father is not that the world would come to the church, but that the church would go to the world. And the people, new believers in Jerusalem, were so caught up with one another that they were not fulfilling the plan that God had to go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So you know what God does? God uses the most unsuspecting tool to move his people to obedience. And what does he use? Persecution. This is a pivotal time in the life of the church because God is about to shake things up. He is going to use persecution to scatter the church. And from Acts chapter 8 onward, it will be introduced today by the spiritual terrorist of the day whose name was Paul or Saul. But until that point, what was happening is they were so enjoying one another that God uses persecution. And we're not talking about the kind of persecution where people just call you names. We're not talking about the kind of persecution where you just get passed over on a promotion on your job. We're not talking about the kind of persecution where, where somebody might lose their job. We're talking about the kind of persecution where people are losing their lives. And before they get to that place of persecution, what we will find in chapter 6 and 7 is that God so graciously prepares them for persecution. And they will. And they will be scattered. And they will die. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, I wanted to pose this question to you this morning. How do you respond to the possibility of dying because you're a follower of Jesus. I mean, think about that. How do you respond with the possibility of you losing your life because you're a follower of Jesus? As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that this was a reality for the people of God, not just a possibility. And let me tell you this, there are Christians all around the world at this moment who are dying because they are children of God. There are people who are dying because they're followers of Christ. Open Doors USA is a watchdog ministry that 
looks over all the persecuted areas of the world and they give reports about what's happening. Here's what they just came out with, their 2021 report. Last year, in 2020, there was a 60% increase in the murder of Christians around the world. A 60% increase. And the one group that was targeted the most this last year were Nigerian Christians killed by radical Islamists. And in that area, 2,200 Christians lost their lives for taking the name of Jesus. In some cases, they went through the villages and wiped out an entire village because no one would recant their relationship with Christ. And as I began to look at some studies and see what's happening, let me give you some stats of our world. Every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith in Jesus. Every day. Every week, 182 churches are attacked. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. There are 260 million Christians who are suffering high to severe levels of persecution around the world. So let me put the question back up. How do you respond to the possibility of dying because you're a follower of Christ? That really doesn't register to us in America, does it? It really doesn't. How many of you woke up this morning think, I could die for Jesus today and be put to death in my neighborhood? How many of you woke up this, this morning and thought, you know, I'm probably going to lose my job tomorrow because I'm a follower of Christ? No, we don't think in those terms. Because for us, that question is a theoretical question, isn't it? It's one that we can't register because we don't experience it. And so as a result, there are two things that happen when we treat this question as theoretical. Number one, we never take it seriously. And number two, we are never prepared for persecution. We're never prepared for it. Because the people who make the choice to give their lives for Jesus Christ do not make that choice in one moment. They do not choose to die for Jesus in one moment. No, long before they get to the death chamber. Long before they get to the gallows. Long before they get to the guillotine. Long before they get to the firing squad. They have already died to certain things that led them to the place to die for Jesus. That's what we see in the book of Acts in chapter 6 and chapter 7. We see that there are three specific things that these believers die to before they ever die for the Lord Jesus. And let me say this, while you and I may not have the threat of losing our life, there is coming a time, and it's increasingly coming before us, of persecution to believers. So what do we need to do to be prepared for the persecution that may come our way? This message isn't just for those who have the real possibility of losing their physical lives. This message also is for every one of us who will face a time of persecution and how we, will we be ready for it. And so this morning, I want to look at three things and make one conclusion, and we will be moving on to chapter 8 next week. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the recorded history that you have given us of the early church. But Father, it is a recording too 
of your victory that we have in Jesus. Help us to see that today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let me give you three things that the early church died to before they ever died for Christ. Number one, the believers in Jerusalem were willing to die to themselves. That's where it starts. They were willing to die to themselves. They recognized what Jesus had taught is the fact that he who saves his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. And so they had to die to themselves. And it wasn't just an individual choice of dying to themselves. It was a corporate choice. The entire body of Christ, at that time, 40 to 50,000 new believers in Jerusalem. And corporately, they had made this decision that we're going to die to ourselves in all matters. We find it in chapter 6, verse 1. Look what happens. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing, the church was growing beyond measure. In number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There were two groups of Jews in Jerusalem. They were the Hebraic Jews, the ones who were born and raised in Jerusalem proper, and they spoke Aramaic or Hebrew in that area. Then there were the Hellenist Jews. The Hellenists just simply means they were Greek-speaking Jews. And these Greeks were from other parts of the world, but in their older days, they moved back to Jerusalem. And they spoke Greek. Well, many of the men were dying, and the women were left, and there were widows. And as a result, the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the distribution of food over the Hebrew widows. Now, let me tell you something about this passage. There's nothing sinful in this passage. There's nothing sinful here that takes place. Because what's happening is there's a neglect, and probably the neglect took place because the, there were so many new people coming into the church and they couldn't keep up with them. The neglect took place because there was no systems in place to create a good strategy of how to take care of all the widows. Now, what does happen is there's a complaint that arises, and the complaint is not necessarily one for grumbling and complaining and gossiping. It was for the purpose of information. And here's what happens. They come, they bring this need, and rather than the leadership pushing back on it, here's what the apostles do. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, that's all the believers, and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, here's what, wonderful. Therefore, brothers, you pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. It's really interesting. He said, here's the problem. There is neglect. We admit there's neglect. So here's the solution. You pick out people that you want to set a system in place so that we can be more effective. And it's so important for us to understand that we must die, for, uh, our, die to ourselves in church because if we, and, and then he says, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. But we must learn to die to ourselves within the body. Die to our rights. Die to our entitlements. Die to what we believe we deserve. And that's what they did. 
They came up with a plan, and here's what it says. Keep going. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. The whole congregation came to a great conclusion. They said, you know what? There is neglect. You're absolutely right. There's something needs to be done. Well, you do it. Choose your men. Choose the people. And the seven men that they chose, by the way, all have Greek names to make sure that they would take care of the Greek widows. And the church came together. And you know what they did? Here's what they did. They laid down their own expectations of what the church should do for them. For the well-being of the whole body. And together, the body died to their own preferences so they would be effective in ministry. Why is it so important for the body to die to itself? Here's what I wrote. A person who's not willing to die to himself in the church, he rarely dies for Jesus outside of the church. If we're not willing to die to, Jesus, to ourselves together in the church then we're not going to be a force that's going to move outward to die for the Lord. So, so what do we do? Let me say this. Everybody is in a church that hurts you. Have you ever been in a church where your feelings are hurt? Raise your hand. If you've ever been in a church where you have hurt feelings were hurt, raise your hand. I can raise mine. Almost everybody in here can do that. And so how do we deal with hurt feelings? This is what we learned from this passage. There are several things that we can do to die to our hurt feelings. Number one is just simply let leaders know that you, about your feelings or that you have been neglected. Go to your leadership. Go to the people who can do something about it. When we have conversation about hurt feelings with one another and we're on this level, you know what we're doing? This is sideways talk. And sideways talk always leads to gossip. And complaining. When your feelings are hurt, go to the people who can do something about it. If you feel neglected, go to those individuals who can do something to remedy that. Secondly, be part of the solution instead of perpetuating a problem. Sit down with the leadership and say, hey, here's some thoughts that I have. Here's what I'm willing to do to help. And what I end up doing is dying to my hurts and I'm looking for ways to help others in the midst of it. And thirdly, it's going to be trust your leaders. Trust your leadership to come up with a plan that works. That's exactly what the early church did. And when they died to their hurts and their expected rights and privileges, they trusted the leadership and they began to move together as one, ready to die for Jesus outside of the body. I want to tell you, this past year was a challenging year for all of our leadership. All the political unrest that we saw, the social unrest, and then with COVID, all of the decisions across the board of where to wear a mask and not wear a mask, and when should we open and when should we not open, and what should our services look like, and how should we do this service and that service, and we listened to a number of people from the life of the body. And as our leaders began to listen to you, we began to make the adjustments along the way. And as a result of that, we've had a new number of different opportunities for people to regather to worship. We were online and we're still online today. 
And many folks are choosing to watch online. We are live, and many of you have chosen to watch live. We had some folks who said we're uncomfortable with coming back, but if you had a mask-only service, we would be there. And we listened to them. So we made a plan for mass services, and those people have been faithful to that group ever since. And we've decided that we would work on different kinds of services, this service with no social distancing. Then at 11, we have a service with social distancing. And now we're running out of space at the 11 o'clock. And so the elders met together and began to say, what's the best thing for the life of our church long term? So we did a survey with all the people at 11 o'clock and we wanted to hear what they thought. Are you coming to this service for the social distancing? And if we didn't have social distancing, would you no longer come to the service? We wanted the information. And the information that we received back from the people at the 11 o'clock service is, no, we're coming here because it's of the time. And even if you didn't have it, we would still be here. Only four families said that they would not come back because of the social distancing. So as a result of that survey, beginning next week, we are going to, in this service and at the 11 o'clock service, not skip every other row. We are going to allow people to come in and be seated on their own. And we're not going to require anybody to register anymore. But those who want a more socially distanced place, we have that for them in the Crosspoint Center. And so here's the point. Before we ever die to ourselves, we as a church will never learn how to die for Jesus in other areas of our lives. And we see that. We die to self. But here's the second thing they died to. The believers in Jerusalem were willing to die to their fears. They were willing to die to their fears. Look at verses 8 and 9. And Stephen, remember Stephen? We just talked about him. Full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs. Stephen was the leader of that whole group of folks that they set aside. Stephen was an incredible communicator. And so he's going out and doing wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They tried to speak with him. They tried to stand toe-to-toe. -to -toe, but Stephen was so full of the spirit of God, of wisdom and power, that they got nowhere with him. So like all people in the cancel culture do, they're going to shut him up. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. They accused him of four things. They accused him of the same four things that they accused Jesus of. Blaspheming God, blaspheming Moses, not treating the temple as holy, and blaspheming the law. Those four things. And they want to accuse him of that. And it goes on. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place and would change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him and, and all who sat in the council, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He was so calm in the midst of all this. And here they are. They're trying to cancel him. They're trying to destroy him. And so what do they do? Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. He is standing before the Supreme Court of Israel. It was the Sanhedrin, and they were made up with the high priest. And he knew that he was standing before the highest court, and he refused to back down. He refused to not die to his fears. And he was going to die to his fears. And as he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Sanhedrin, he understood that there were certain fears there that he would have to overcome. He would have to overcome the fear of man, being concerned what they could do to him. He had to overcome the fear of being misunderstood. They could call him all kinds of names because of their intellectual degrees that they have. And they could have easily accused him of more things. He also had to overcome the fear of his own mortality. He knew that his life was in the hands of these men. I want to tell you that when you and I are walking through this world as the body of Christ, we've got to overcome certain fears. We've got to be willing to die for our fears before we can ever die to Christ. There, there are things that we have to die to. You and I every day have to choose to kill the fear of man in us because we're always worried what other people think. We have to kill the fear of being misunderstood because if you take a stand on biblical accuracy and you take a stand of biblical principle, you will be called names. Names like racist misogynist, maybe discriminatory, homophobic. And the names can go on and on and on, and we end up becoming the radical extremist that they're saying is the existential threat to America. And we're going to have to be willing to die to our fears. And we have to be willing to die to our own mortality. I got news for you. The mortality rate of humanity is 100%. Every one of us will die. One man told me this morning, ain't none of us getting out of this alive. We're going to die. And if we are so afraid of losing our lives, you know what we end up becoming? We end up living a life of self-preservation. It becomes about me. It becomes about protecting everything that I have. And we let this little thing called fear keep us from doing some of the greatest things for God. And isn't it amazing how fear can alter our lives? We've seen that in 2020. The fear of a little tiny virus that has shut down the world and shut down our communities and shut down churches and shut down Christians 
who at one time were free to do ministry. And I want to tell you this. If we let a little virus shut us down from being involved in ministry for Christ, what do you think will happen if the persecutors come and they want to take our lives? Now, I understand that this virus is deadly. I understand that we have to be careful and take the precautions of that. But I have to get to, place, I have to, get to a place in my life where it's no longer about self-preservation. It is about glorification and living in that. So I have to die to myself. I have to die to my fears. But here's the third thing. The believers in Jerusalem were willing to die to compromise. They would not compromise on the message of the gospel. And they were willing to die before they did that. In the next passage, we see that Stephen gives a sermon. And he goes on and on and on. And we're not going to look at all those verses because it's really long. But I will encourage you to read it if you haven't read it. And what he does is he defends himself and he mentions the very four things that they accused him of. Blaspheming God and Moses and the law and dishonoring the temple. And so he starts talking about the whole history of Israel. He begins with Abraham. He lays that out nicely. He flows into Joseph and Joseph going into Egypt and how Joseph was an incredible impact and a prince of Egypt. And then how a new leadership of Egypt comes in and now all of a sudden the people are in slavery. And then God raises up Moses. And Moses goes to the wilderness and then he comes back and he tells them that God wants to deliver him. God does all these wonderful signs in Moses. He delivers the people and then they are stick-necked. They are angry with Moses. In one case they want to kill Moses. And yet God spares them and they go through the wilderness. And then we see the work of King David. And we see that flowing into the prophets and then into Solomon's temple. And as he comes down to the end of his wonderful sermon, all of those leaders must have been impressed by Stephen. Because everything he said was correct. As a matter of fact, Stephen could have gotten off the hook at this point. Because they were so impressed with his understanding of the history of Israel, they would have said, whoa, man, if that's all he has to say, let's let this guy go. I mean, he can go scot-free. We like this guy right now. But what they missed was that all of this was about Jesus. The prophets were about Jesus. The law pointed to Christ. The signs and wonders were about Jesus. The Pharisees missed it, and he refused to compromise. He could have walked away from that. But here's what he says to them in chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a seeker-friendly sermon. <laughs> this is not an attractional model. He called them stiff-necked like the people of Israel. He called them uncircumcised, which was the epitome of insults for a Jewish person, and that they're constantly resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Then he goes on. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. If he wanted to be killed, there's no better formula than that. And yet he refused to compromise. He chose death over comfort at that moment because he told them the truth about Jesus. Have you picked up on this? That, that, that Stephen is preaching just like Peter does? That God meets you where you are? He tells you the truth about who you are? He tells you that Jesus is the only answer? He demands a response and then he invites you into a community? Stephen is following that. And he refused to compromise on the message of the gospel. I want to tell you, I want to tell you something. You want to avoid persecution as a believer? Just compromise the gospel. You want to avoid persecution as a believer? Just try to fit the culture in with that. Matter of fact, there's a classic book. You might want to write this down. It's called Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr. And he gives five ways the church will respond in culture. See if these are not right. Five ways. He says, the first is the Christ of culture. This is where the church tries to accommodate the culture and you, you, you assimilate Jesus into the culture and you're always changing the message so that you can connect with the culture. That's the Christ of culture. We have countless churches in America who have done that so that the culture would like them. Here's the second thing. Christ against culture. Christ against culture is the philosophy where I'm going to demonize everybody in a culture that's not like me, and I'm going to pull away from everybody, and I'm going to just live in my own little Christian bubble with my own little Christian friends and to hell with everybody else. That is the Christ against culture. Then you have Christ above culture. Christ above culture is the concept that, hey, yes, when I'm with my Christian friends, I'm going to display Christian principles. But when I'm with my secular friends, I'm going to display secular principles. And I'm going to try to keep the two apart. But the problem is this. My actions and culture nullify my commitments to Christianity. And nobody likes a person like that. Here's the fourth one. Christ and culture in paradox. That means we recognize that there's a confliction, some kind of conflict between the church and culture. And so what we want to do, we want to fight for our rights as believers. We want to fight for those freedoms and we want to fight for all of that. And I think that's right to do that. But the problem is the fight only goes towards, I have the right to be wrong. And it never goes beyond that. But here's the last one. Christ transforming culture. Living in culture in such a way with a passion and a, and a boldness and a compassionate spirit to tell people the truth about who they are and who God is regardless of the consequences that follow. And that's what the church is called to be. We are to be Christ transforming the culture. And the only way I'm going to do that is to die to my fears. The only way I'm going to do that is to die to myself. And I will never get to that place of transforming the culture unless I have died to those things in the past. And I must die to compromise. So what happened? Were the Pharisees 
And the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin, were they happy with Stephen? <laughs> no. Chapter 7, verses 54 and following. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. You ever had anybody grind their teeth at you because they're so mad? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now this is very significant. Jesus is always seated at the right hand of the Father. And when a person is seated, that is a sign that a work is finished and is completed. Only here we find Jesus standing. And it's two times. Look at the next verse. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus stand? He stood in honor of the very first Christian who would die for him. He stood to honor Stephen because he had died to himself. He had died to his fears. He had died for compromise. And now he died for the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice some similarities that take place here as we keep reading. Then they cast him out of the city. Jesus was thrown outside of the city before they executed him. And they stoned him. Jesus died outside of the city, as Stephen did. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. They laid down Jesus' garments at the feet of those who were crucifying him and gave the right. Saul was the one who gave the okay to stone him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said the same, and it goes on. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. You see the parallels of what Jesus did for us and what Stephen did for the church. Because Jesus shows us how to be prepared for persecution because everything we just mentioned this morning, the Lord Jesus did for you and he did for me. And what Stephen did, he did as a model for the church. But there's one point I want to close on. The believers in Jerusalem learned dying for Jesus is reflective of a life lived well for Jesus. The person who dies for Jesus is a demonstration of a life that was lived well for Jesus. Because let me tell you the most important question here this morning for us. It's not just would you die for Jesus. Will you live for him? Will you live for him? You see, because this is true. No person will die for something they don't live for. What you live for is what you would give your life to. And if you're a believer and you're not living for Jesus now, most likely you wouldn't lay down your life when the time comes because it's self-preservation. But if you're living for Jesus now, 
and you're seeking to bless his heart, and you are dying daily to him, individually and corporately, you are laying your fears at his feet every single day so you can stand in boldness to declare who he is. You are refusing to compromise the message of the gospel. Then you, my friend, have already died for the things that prepare you for the greatest persecutions you will ever face. I thought about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego this morning. It's in the book of Daniel. They were captured, brought to Babylon. They were some of the smartest young men from Judea. And King Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue of himself and he says, when you hear the music playing, everyone should bow. And if you don't bow, I'll throw you into a furnace and you will die. And this was on the plain of Dura. Hundreds of thousands of people are on the plain. They're standing around. The music starts. Everybody falls except for three guys. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but there was a fourth in the fire who delivered them. And here's the thing that struck me about them. They did not make the decision to stand when they got to the plain of Dura. They made the decision to stand before they ever heard about the plain of Dura. And we have a decision as a body. We have a decision as a body to be prepared. But until we die to ourselves, our fears, and to compromise, I don't believe we're going to fully live for the Lord Jesus. So here's what I want you to do this morning. When it comes to the possibility about dying because of your faith in Jesus Christ, how does that stir your heart? Are you willing to do that? Then are you living for him? It begins there. I'm going to speak to the believers this morning. Your life now is a reflection of what you would do if your life is on a line right now. Are there areas of your life that you need to submit to the Lord today no matter what they are? And are you willing to be the man, the woman that would lay aside those things that you might walk in a way that honors Christ? See, He died for you so you can live for Him until that moment when you must choose and then he is glorified. If you're here this morning and you're watching online and you're not a believer, you've already heard Tucker say, your greatest need right now is a savior. And we would implore you that you would surrender your life to Jesus because he's the only answer for your heart, your life. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one that can give you freedom. He's the only one who can prepare you for eternity. So would you do it?
A lot of times we say, I can't do that. I'm just too weak. I'm too weak. I'm not strong enough. Let me tell you what it takes. It takes faith. Absolute faith to trust Christ in all things. Would you do that? I'm going to ask you to stand together. Would you stand? We're going to close with a song. And let this song be your declaration. Father, thank you. How you prepare us for all things. And Father, while we don't really think much about dying for Jesus, Father, would you strike our hearts to live for him? We thank you, Father, that he took on human flesh for us. That he died on a cross for us. That he rose on the third day to demonstrate to us that he is who he said he is. He is at the right hand of you. And your spirit is inside of us. Father, may we walk obediently and boldly for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast. And thank you also to those who continue to give with generosity. If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about Jesus or our church, go to scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Just make sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Until next time.